0: What in the world is the book of Ecclesiastes all about? The name Ecclesiastes is a transliteration of the Hebrew title. It's actually a transliteration of the Greek name for this book. The word Ecclesiastes means the preacher, And when they translated the Septuagint version, that's what they uh, called it, the book of Ecclesiastes. In Hebrew, it's the koaleth, or the preacher in our language. By the way, this week, I received a, today rather, I received a gift. In fact, I received two things today. I'm trying to find out where I put it. (laughs) Well, anyway, it's a quotation from the book of Ecclesiastes that says, I'm not exactly sure, but the point is that there's a time for everything, and everything in its time. And with it was a gift of a clock that I can see from the pulpit. Cheer up. When I, when I walked into the podium this morning, this morning, I found another one also. Somebody's trying to tell me something. I can't imagine what it is. (laughs) How many of you read the book of Ecclesiastes this week? Well, two or three or four of you. How many got all the way through it? Hearty souls, lift your hands. (laughs) I remember when I first started to teach this, a friend of mine came to me in the middle of the week. I'd asked him to read it, and he said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no way. He said, May- that made me so depressed, I didn't want to live anymore. <laughs> a group in uh, class went on a camping trip And one time, gathering around their fire at night, they read this book together. And it rained on their parade. (laughs) I think that if you would take a vote among the Christians about the least favorite book in the Bible, (coughs) this and the book of Ecclesiastes would have a tough race. The book of Ecclesiastes and the book of uh, Leviticus would have a quick race. No one knows which one win. This is a book that is the favorite of the agnostics and the atheists because they think that there are some things in this book that contradict Christian truth. The hedonists love the book. It tells them to eat, drink, and be merry. Jerome, the ancient father who translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate, used this book to persuade men to become monks. The Jews read this book at the Feast of Tabernacles, because it is a feast of joy. One of the most popular radio preachers teaching on this book said this, this is a human philosophy apart from God. That made me shudder. However, There are many other great teachers. Dr. Kaiser, for example, of Trinity Seminary says that this book is the best news that baffled modern man has ever heard. But if you want to find out about a book, you don't go to the critics. You read the book. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the book, what the book says about itself. It begins with a prologue. It ends with an epilogue or a conclusion. And we want to look at both of these this morning. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask you to take the word of your book and instruct us in it. In Jesus' precious and wonderful name, amen. Some have asked that we try to use overheads. I'm going to try. I don't make any promises. I hate the things. But we will, uh, we will try to use overheads. And if I sort of get all wrapped up and forget the overhead, you'll just forgive me, won't you? The prologue of the book. The prologue of the book. Verses one You notice it starts off by telling us the position of the author. The words of the preacher. In Hebrew, that's Koaleth, And it means simply one who assembles people in order to teach them or speak to them. And a good translation of the word is the word preacher. That's his position. A man who recognized the gift of God upon him and the message of God that had been given to him and he called the people together to deliver that message. And then you'll notice it tells us of the author's person. It says, he is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We're told something in addition in verse 12 if you look at that. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. David had many sons. These sons reigned in Jerusalem over Judah. But there was only one son of David who ever has reigned in Jerusalem over Israel. And that was Solomon. And for more than 2,000 years, the believing world accepted this book as the book written by Solomon. And then along came the critics. And they tell us that the Hebrew of this book belongs to a later period in the history of Israel, the period of the exile, and therefore the book could not have been written In the days of Solomon, it must have been written during the exile. Now I haven't the slightest idea whether these critics know what they're talking about or not. I know this, that evidence from style is very flimsy at the best. For example, the author of Alice in Wonderland has also written several books on mathematics. See? The style of his books on mathematics is nothing like the style, the delightful style, of his book, Alice in Wonderland. And 10,000 years from now, when some critics dig these books up out of the ground, if the Lord permits that to happen, they will say that according to the style, the one was written in one period and the other was written in the other period, and who knows? After all, it isn't important. Really? The important thing is this, that when the consensus of Hebrew scholarship, after making minute searchings to test each of the books put into the Old Testament, when the consensus was in The book of Ecclesiastes was included in the canon of the Old Testament. And let's remember that it was this canon of the Old Testament containing the book of Ecclesiastes, which Jesus in his day said, this is scripture, which cannot be broken. I take the word of the Lord. He said, this is scripture. It is able to make one wise unto salvation. And by it, the man of God is thoroughly furnished. It gives us exhortation and it gives us instruction. It gives us what we need. This book is Scripture. Then you'll notice the next thing about this. The author introduces his proverb in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he notice in chapter 12 of this book, and in verse 8, as he brings his material to its conclusion, he repeats the verse. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Chapter 12, verse 8. All is vanity. This, men are, tell us, as the theme of the book. Everything is vain. All things are vain. And they say this is the theme of the book. Actually, the preacher frames his book around three major proverbs that he repeats over and over again in the book this is one of them vanity of vanities and this word vanity is a very interesting word it is used some 60 times in the Bible and by the way there are seven different Hebrew words that are translated vain or vanity in your your English translations this one is used some 60 plus times most of them here right in the book Of Ecclesiastes they are used in four distinctly different ways it is used to name pagan idols they are called vanities it is used to refer to money that has been earned easily and spent easily very much like you and I would say easy come easy go it is used also by Isaiah to refer to a cry for help that will be lost in the wind in the day of judgment. But its most interesting use is found over in the book of Psalms. And it's the most common use of the word because this little word translated vanity here is translated accurately for us and succinctly for us in Psalm 144. Psalm 144 and verse 4. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The word translated vanity all through this book of Ecclesiastes is the simple word for breath, Hebel a breath that on a cold, crisp morning appears for a minute and disappears. What he is saying is that life, life as you and I know it here on this earth, is short. He uses superlative, vanity of vanities, like holy of holies, see, or king of kings is the superlative. He said it's the shortest thing possible life is very short like a breath and that's the thing he's emphasizing it can be vain it can be empty it can also be full and joyful but it is short too brief transitory that's what he's trying to say it says james says in chapter 4 verse 14 you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now the second proverb he uses is in verse verse 3. Look at it. It's in verse 3. It says, What advantage does man have in all of his works which he does under the sun? It's a little phrase, that little phrase, under the sun. Three, pardon me, 40 times Forty times during this book, he uses this phrase. Always he's talking about life under the sun. This book does not tell you how to go to heaven. This book does not tell you about eternal life. This book is concerned with one thing, life that now is, here and now, under the sun. That's the whole point. That's the thrust of this book. This book is concerned with life under the sun, and I've added the words, with the sun. That's what this book is about. That's the theme of this book. He adds another proverb, and you find that proverb in chapter 2 and in verse 24. It's a third one. He repeats it seven times. In fact, he repeats it at the end of each one of his messages. And in verse twenty-four, he says this: "This is nothing better for a there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good." This also I have seen. Now here it is that it is from the hand of God. And if you look at chapter five in verse eighteen, it says, "Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting." to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God hath given him. Get that? The few years that you and I have, this life which we have is the gift of God to us. This is our reward. This is what God gives us. He gives us this brief span of life. But this life, is the gift of God to us. And this book is put right here in the middle of your Bible to instruct you how to live that life. Yes, this brief life can become a vain, and empty, futile, zero type of thing if you live it a certain way. Or this life can become a joyous, wonderful experience with God if you live it according to the way God directs you. This book is instructions on how to live this present, very brief life. I suppose you've had the experience I've had. One day my wife and I were in a store and we saw a nice gadget and it looked beautiful. And I said to the fellow, I said, I'll take that. And I reached over to pick it up. And he said, no, leave that one there. We've got another one for you over here. And so he gave me a box with this gadget in it. You guessed it. When I took it out of the box, it didn't look at all like that beautiful thing on the table. It was umpteen dozen pieces. So I proceeded to try to put it together. And my wife watched me as I muttered there, trying to put this thing together. And finally, in her great infinite wisdom, she said to me, Have you read the instructions? Instructions, And lo and behold, the thing went together real quickly. And it looked like the beautiful article that we saw in the store. Life. It's but a breath. An instant of things. It can be empty, futile, frustrating. Zero. It can be a joyous experience. If you pay attention to the instructions, for here God has given us instructions concerning the way to live this life here and now under the sun. That's what it's all about. That's what this book is concerned. And then, You notice that the author goes on then to point out to us his problem. And his problem is given to us in the remaining verses, verses 3 through 11. First of all, you'll notice that he points out to us in chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, the advantage, he asks it in the form of a question, what advantage does man have in all of his work? which he does under the sun. This word translated advantage here is translated by the King James prophet. What profit does a man have in all his work under the sun? It's a simple Hebrew word for what is left. And what it's talking about, the bottom line, after you deduct the debits from the credits, what's the bottom line? You live your life. You pay all your bills. You gain all your gains. What is left? That's the question. The answer is in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. That's the answer. After you've lived your life, what's left? Well, I'll tell you what's left. You leave it and your heirs pick up all the marbles. That's what's left. That's it. What's the profit for life? What your heirs pick up. That's it. Now, in contrast with that, the author points out something, but the earth remains forever. And he points to the sun. He said also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place it rises again. He points to the wind blowing towards the south then turning toward the north the wind continues swirling along on its circular course the wind returns. Then he points to the rivers. All the rivers flow into the sea yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. The earth remains forever. Man, man's life is very brief. He's here like a puff of wind and he's gone. The earth remains forever. The same sun that shone upon my great grandfather, shone upon my grandfather, shone upon my father shines upon me shines upon my children and lord willing will shine upon my grandchildren and my great grandchildren the same sun the same wind that blew upon my grand- great grandfather blew upon my grandfather blew up upon my father blows upon me will blows upon my children will blow upon my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, Lord, would Some time ago, I went back to the scenes of my childhood. That's a long ways back. And when I went there, I went to a certain place. There was a pond. There was a pond. Sixty-plus years. I'm not going to tell you how many. Sixty-plus years ago, you know, I skated on that pond as a boy. My father skated on that pond. My grandfather skated on that pond. I walked down to the Raritan River in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I stood on the bridge, and under it I saw the water flowing. The same water looked upon by my father, the same water seen by my grandfather. The same water that was flowing there long before there was a New Brunswick, New Jersey, and a bridge built. And if the Lord tarries, it'll keep right on flowing after the bridge falls down. See, he's contrasting the fact that the earth remained. But man, he's here today. And poof, vanity of vanity. Why? Well, the coalesce does not tell us. We have to leave that. We go back to the book of Genesis, and there we discover why. Man has sinned because man has sinned. He has come under the judgment of death. And life, which was to be walked with God upon this earth, has now walked in our own do-it-yourself plans, doing our own way, our own things, our own sinful ways. And life, under the sentence of death, has become only a puff of the wind. He goes on to describe it. He not only has told us about the actions of nature, but he tells us now about the accomplishments of man. What do you get out of this life? What do you do in this life? He says, first of all, all things are wearisome. All things are wearisome. Man's life is wearisome. He says, the eye, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. There are just not, not enough time for us to see what we want to see. There's not enough time to hear what we want to hear. We listen for 24 hours. We look for 24 hours. We travel here and yon and every place trying to hear it and to see it all. The newest sound of music, the newest painting, the newest vision, the newest scheme, we look and we look and we look And our goal is to see it all when we don't reach our goal. We work and we work and we work, but we don't reach our goal. Why? Because our life is too short. He points out another thing. He points out to us the fact that man's life is repetitious. Look at what he says there in verses 9 and 10. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been is done. That which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one may say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before. You know, this is one of those verses the critics latch on to and say, how can you believe a book that would make such a generalization and tell us that there's nothing new. The fact that we have put a man on the moon, isn't that new? Our airplanes, are they not new? There's a lot of new things. What do you mean there's nothing new under the sun? Can you believe a book that will say that? Yes, because the book is saying something within a distinct context. Certainly, we have put a man on the moon. That's new. We travel in better cars today than the buggies of our grandparents. We uh, eat better, a lot more perhaps, see, than our parents before. There's a lot new. But wait a minute. We also worry like they do. We have, we're afraid like they were. See? We're frustrated like they were. The author is not saying there's no new gadgetry. What he's saying is that the new gadgetry has not changed our experience. See? The men that went up and walked on the moon wondered and worried if they would get back. The same experience There's a fellow who goes out to San Francisco. New gadgetry, same experience. There's nothing new under the sun. And you, in your life, you're not going to accomplish something new. Oh, you're going to train real hard. You're going to train real hard. And you'll make a record. And your name will go into the Guinness Book of Records and you'll open the book, and you'll read it. And while you're reading it, there's another fellow comes along, and he trains real well, and he breaks your record. And as you're reading it, the type in the Guinness books of record change, and your name disappears. You build a nice machine, beautiful. You listen to a purr. You say, hey, this is going to do the job. This is, this is really it. You've worked all your life and skilled yourself to do it. You've accomplished it. You lean back, and the telephone rings. And over the line comes a voice, Hey, we've got a new part for that motor of yours. Life. You never reach the end of it. You don't accomplish the perfection. You don't make any real change in it. You bring out a new gadget, but the people go on with the same experiences of life as before. Life is repetitious. Then he says the next thing. Look at it there. He says life, man's life, a man's life is soon forgotten. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of early things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later. You work, you do your thing, You accomplish your goals. You you work hard. And you go. And who remembers you? Tell me your great-grandfather's name. Quick now. Tell me his father's name. Even within the family. Only those who like to trace genealogy tables can think of that stuff. What's the man of the first man to walk on the moon? Huh? Yeah. One of you history buffs tell us his name was Armstrong, right? Well, it was the second man. Who invented the automobile? Don't tell me Ford did. You know that thing you sit in front of all the time, it mesmerizes you, that TV? Who invented it? Huh? Oh, we have that information in a museum someplace. We put it in history books. And you kids that go to school, they make you study it. Trying to get it into your mind. And you study it until you pass the test and then you forget it. We don't remember. We live our life upon this earth, but we're not remembered. A few make a great impression and are remembered for a few years. We still remember Lincoln. And yet the other day, I heard a young girl in her teens ask, who was Lincoln? Already he's fading from view with his stove-top hat and his beard. We don't remember. Life is brief. Life is wearisome. You just get bone-weary with it. Not the kind of weariness that comes from a, a, a healthy day's work kind that comes from frustration. That's what life is all about. That's what he's saying. Well, you say to me, is that what we're going to read in this book? Is that what this is all about? No. The author of this book is giving us the answer to this. You see, God made the earth so it remains. God lets you and I live a very brief life on this earth. And God wants now to guide us through that life so that it is not wearisome and crushing, but so that it is triumphant. Now, what does he do to help us? Will you turn with me, please, to the epilogue of the book? Will you look at that with me, please? In chapter 12, beginning with verse 8, he starts off, by the way, with the very first words. You know, that same proverb in, in, in chapter 12 and verse 8. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All oh, is vanity. And then he adds something in verse 9. And an addition... He tells us the method of his message. He says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. He didn't lean on his own wisdom to teach the people. Not a bit of it. He says he pondered. He sat down and he thought through what he was going to say. He searched out. He took the things he was going to say and he tested each one of them. He searched them out. And the third thing, he arranged many Proverbs. That's the method of the day. In order to talk to people in that day, you had to talk in Proverbs. Today, we use the scientific method. That's our method. In their days, it was a method of Proverbs. So that's what he did. He sought out Proverbs and he arranged them. And he goes on and he says in verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words. He took what he had learned. He took what he tested. And then he expressed it in the best and most delightful way, the most interesting way possible. And then he added this, and to write words of truth correctly, he wrote clearly and precisely the truth that God wanted him to write. That was his method. But what did he write? Did he, did he take all this time to tell us that life was very short here under the sun and it would be wearisome and repetitious and it would soon be forgotten? Oh, no. Look at the purpose of his message in verse 11. The word of the wise men are like goads, That's what he's written. He said, in my writing, I have put goads. What's a goad? If you ever lived on a farm and had to go out and bring the cows home, you know what a goad is. It's a stick, a sharp-pointed stick that is used to prod the animals along, to keep them moving. He says, in my book, I have written goads. I have written thoughts, seed thoughts, ideas, challenges that are going to probe you, are going to force you to think about where you're living and how you're living and the way you're living, and challenge you to turn from those ways and to go in the ways that God wants you to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stir you up, I'm going to char, I'm going to ch- prod you. I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to motivate you or the thoughts that are in this book. And that's what this book is about. You see, you and I, living in our culture, we adapt our culture, and we follow the patterns of our culture, and the patterns of our culture are full with dead-end streets that go nowhere. And we just slip into them without thinking, and we start down these dead-end streets that go nowhere, and we end up frustrated We end up unhappy. We end up miserable. We cry, vanity of vanities. This is a futile life. This is empty. This is zero. The writer says, wait a minute. I've written in my book, goads that will prod you, make you look at the fact that you're on a dead end street, that you'll know I have sense enough to turn around and get back and walk in the way of God second thing he tells us that he does, he says the master of these collections are like well-driven nails, a tent stake. You ever been out camping and have the wind come up? Remember what you did? You rush to the tent. You give an extra whack or two on the tent stakes. You tighten the rope. And the tent stays up as long as the stake stays in place that keeps it. He says, in my book, I have placed truth after truth after truth after truth that you can tie to. I've given you truths here. I've given you values here that you can tie your life to. They're well-driven nails that are there for you to see. So you can anchor your experience to; You can put your life up to them. They will hold their nails, well-driven nails. They're the truths and the verities of God himself. That's the purpose. In this book, you're going to find goads that will prod you loose from your sinful ways. In this book, you're going to find nails, the verities of God that you can tie your life to. I hope you'll stay with me and learn each one of them. But then notice he talks next to the source of this message. And to me, this thrilled my heart. He says, look at it, he says down there. He said, they are given by the one shepherd. The prods, the goads came from where? From Solomon? From his wisdom? As Solomon pondered, as he searched it out, God was working in his life. The one shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. The one who came into this world and as the good shepherd gave his life for his sheep, this one guided that man. Gave him the goads. Gave him the nails that are in his book to tell us the way of life. This is not the word of Solomon. This is the word of the Lord. This is not, one teacher said, the philosophy of the natural man. This is the word of the Lord. He is telling us. He will point out to us, that's a dead-end street. Go down that path, you're in for trouble. Here is the real way. Here, rope your tent to this truth, and it'll hold no matter what the wind and how the wind blows. That's what is in this book. And they've come to us from the shepherd. That's the purpose. And what's the conclusion of the whole business? What is the conclusion of the whole business? Look at it. He tells us there. He says, first of all, fear God. Look at it in verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, when you read about all of the goads and you read all about all of the nails, what's the conclusion? Fear God. Fear God. He's not telling you to be afraid of God. God doesn't want us to be afraid of Him. Now, this is an experience that I heard the other day. There was a, f- a fellow was telling me about a, a guy working with him. This fellow is a big strapping man, and he, uh, but he, he, he's tied to those coffin nails called cigarettes. And uh, he has to have a puff every once in a while. Now, where he works it's against the rules to smoke during working hours. But he can't go from coffee break to coffee break. They're only 10 minutes apart, I suppose. But he can't go that far without a puff. And so what does he do? He turns to his buddies. He says, hey, watch out. If the boss is coming, whistle. And he goes over, lights up, puts it away. Now, what does that mean? Now, he's not afraid of the boss. He's a great big strapping guy. He could pick the boss up with one hand and throw him away. See? No. But he has fear of that boss because he knows that boss can do what? Fire him. That's right. There it is. Fear God. Respect God's authority. Recognize that he's the boss. You and I don't have options of our own. We live under the rule of the king. He is the one who is to govern our lives. We are to fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of the wise way of life. Then he says another thing. He says, keep his commandments. Now, careful, please. Remember what I told you? This book does not tell you how to go to heaven. Don't read this to somebody and say, See, that's the way to be saved, to go to heaven. That's not what the book is about. How do you go to heaven? Why, my friend, you recognize the fact that you have already blown it. You've broken God's commandments, and the judgment is upon you. And Jesus died for you and washed your sins away. He's removed all those fractures of the law that have been in your life. He's washed them all away with his own blood. And he has taken you in his hands, and he promises to deposit you in heaven. And you're saved, not by keeping his commandments, but by trusting Jesus. That is all. But now that you trusted him, what does that trust involve? Well, that trust involves the simple fact that you believe he knows enough to tell you what to do. If you're really believing in him, you believe what he says. You believe his commandments. So now, for this brief, all too brief span of life under the sun, what are you to do? Keep his commandments. Not to go to heaven, but if you want to live a life on this earth that is not frustrating, that is not defeating. If you want to live a life that is, that is one that is blessed of God, a life that has the blessing and the strength and the joy of God in your life, then you've got to follow His rules. John wrote this in his first epistle. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then he said, now keep His commandments. Now that you're saved and you're on your way to heaven for this brief life, keep his commandments. And the third thing he says is there in verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is what God is going to do. You've got to believe. You've got to remember that God is not only in control, but that God is going to take all the pieces of the puzzle someday and put them together. Your heart has been as horrified as I as I heard of the story of this little girl put into a room, this little five-year-old child put into a room, saturated with gasoline and set on fire by your own father. God is going to bring that act into review. He is going to straighten it all out. You and I look at the puzzle and the mass of humanity around about us. We look at the injustices. We look at the evil. We say, what can be done for it? God says, I have it in control. I will judge each act. I will bring it all to a just conclusion. Let me do my thing. You do your thing. Fear me. Keep my commandments and remember that i am in